This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. Here's a couple things right off the top. It's coming down to the wire here, folks, and there's a lot to get to today. But the headline is everything is riding on this election. November will make or break our democracy. Democrats, we must vote in mass, no excuses, so make a plan. Know how you're voting, know where you're voting, and if you've got the time, help other people vote as well. If you live in a state with early voting, you can vote days or weeks before November 6th. And in many states, you can vote right now. So I'm breaking with tradition. Instead of voting on election day, which has been the standard for presidential candidates, I'm making a plan to vote early on October 25th. And if you live in a state where you can, I'd like you to join me. But trust me, no one will be safe if MAGA extremists are given any ground. Just the events of the last few days are proof enough of that. They have a lot of stupid people that vote in their primaries. I really, they really do. I mean, I'm, I'm not, you're not supposed to say that, but it's, it's obvious fact. And you know, when stupid people vote, you know who they nominate? Other stupid people. <laughs> and, and they have, a, the, the, the Republicans have a problem. They got very low quality people that vote in their primaries and they're producing predictably very low quality candidates. It, it, it's evident right in front of you. Adding to his cornucopia of legal bullshit, Trump is now suing CNN. I mean, he's suing CNN because they've used the term the big lie to describe, yeah, the big lie. The other big breaking story tonight, former President Donald Trump suing CNN, saying the network defamed him by using labels like racist, insurrectionist and even Hitler. Trump seeking $475 million in punitive damages, claiming CNN carried out a campaign of libel and slander. He told us over and over again that the 2020 election was stolen, but it wasn't. But because CNN said that he was a liar and compared him to the closet counterpart, Hitler, he thinks he's got grounds for a lawsuit. So good luck, Donald. But as your former lawyer, I should tell you, you don't have a case. I did not, I repeat, did not willingly sleep with her. That's how I know I'm not the father. This chick keeps running around town stealing sperm so her and her lesbian girlfriend can have a baby. The former president is also hoping that the Supreme Court will continue his pattern of stalling in the Mar-a-Lardo documents case until, I don't know, after the elections maybe? when he might fare better if Republicans take back the House and or the Senate? So, lady, where were we? Trump's team has filed an emergency request asking the court to intervene and overrule the 11th Circuit Court's ruling. I mean, just to make a mess of things. The former president appears to be making a play to get more access to more of those documents. He's asking the Supreme Court to allow that special master, that independent legal expert, to review documents marked classified, which could allow the Trump team to get access to those documents as well as they prepare to mount a legal defense. Again, it's a limited challenge, but it's a challenge to the Supreme Court nonetheless. Now, two weeks ago, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals sided with the DOJ and decided to bar the special master, Raymond Deary, from reviewing classified documents seized from Mar-a-Lago. Judge Deary, for his part, has been clear. He doesn't need or even want to see the classified documents in question. But the Trump team is appealing the appeal anyway. And why? Because they're not trying to solve the case. They're just stalling, deflecting. They just want to draw it out. That is the argument the Trump team is making, that 
they're using a very hyper-technical approach. They're saying that, well, Judge Cannon at the district court level said, in the future, I'm going to be uh, appointing a special master, which she later did. DOJ appealed that, and Trump team saying, well, you can't appeal that because that's not really what the district court ordered. Mm. They didn't even get to the special master yet, so you, 11th Circuit, never had jurisdiction to hear it. It's kind of a hyper-technical point. I don't think the Supreme Court's going to buy into it. I would look for this one to get bumped probably without even an opinion. And wouldn't you know it? The husband of insane election denier Jeannie Thomas handles all the emergency applications for the 11th Circuit. Tuesday, Justice Clarence Thomas asked the DOJ to file a response to Trump's request by October 11th. Thomas is playing it cool and waiting for the DOJ to respond before he and his 6-3 to three conservative majority pounce. I mean, rule on it. The multiple moving parts Politico notes has, quote, complicated the status of Trump's legal plight, which of course is the point here. Complicate a matter that at its core is not that complicated. Trump took thousands of White House documents, including hundreds of classified ones, to his Florida home. And for months, he refused to return them and even lied about their existence. But Trump emergency applications haven't always gone his way. His attempt to prevent White House documents from being handed over to the January 6th committee failed and failed miserably. And so did his bid to avoid disclosure of his financial records to prosecutors in New York. So we'll have to wait and see. In June 2022, the US Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, ending the constitutional right to abortion. It's a sad day for the court and for the country. The court's decision was celebrated by conservatives, despite having an immediate impact on women's access to health care. This is a nightmare! I'm 21 and I'm terrified! It sends a message that women should not have control over their bodies. The decision comes after former President Trump nominated three Supreme Court justices during his presidential term. But if you have any doubt that the radical right Supreme Court is on a mission to separate us from our precious civil rights, then guess again. On Tuesday, the court heard Milligan versus Merrill, a case that could undermine Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. At question is Alabama's new congressional map a map that underwent significant racial gerrymandering, diluting black Alabamans' voting power and dividing up what is known as the Black Belt. Now, Alabama is 27% black and has a history of discrimination. Until now, this new map would have been laughed out of court as an obvious attempt to power grab. Yeah, Kataji Brown-Jackson is great. Her first day was yesterday. She already um, got right in there asking really pertinent and probative questions um, of the attorneys at the case. You know, so she didn't seem to need a whole lot of uh, uh, time to get comfortable in her new job. I think she's going to be a great justice. I think she is going to have a great career ahead of her writing dissents because she is clearly in the minority on that court. And the things that are coming down the pipe are terrifying and horrible. And all she will be able to do is through her questioning and oral arguments and through her writing at decision time, all she'll be able to do is to highlight the extremism 
of the conservative majority voting bloc on the Supreme Court. Justice Jackson deployed an approach often used by her conservative colleagues and pointed out that the drafters of the Constitution were trying to ensure that people who had been discriminated against were actually brought equal to everyone else in society. That's not a race-neutral or race-blind idea, Jackson concluded. Um, I don't think that the historical record establishes that the founders uh, believed that race neutrality or race blindness was required, right? They drafted the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which specifically stated that citizens would have the same civil rights as enjoyed by white citizens. But right now, it looks like the six conservative justices will rule against voters' rights. The outcome of this case will determine the future of voting rights all across the country. If the Supreme Court were to adopt Alabama's position, any state then could essentially exempt themselves from the Voting Rights Act and then design their own race-neutral redistricting maps. I mean, wouldn't that be fun? Give the power to seriously limit or silence communities of color to racists, and guess what? We'll set civil rights back decades. This is the Supreme Court term, just started today, in which the new conservative supermajority on the Supreme Court has gone out of their way to put a case before themselves on something called the independent state legislature doctrine, which is a thing that I swear to you is, is well and truly boring. The more you read about it, the more soporific you will feel. I mean, it's, it's just boring, particularly if you're not a lawyer. However, what the independent state legislature doctrine could do, what this case could do now that these Supreme Court justices have asked to hear a case about it, is it effectively could give Republicans in state legislatures the power to do what Trump demanded that they do in 2020. It could give Republican-controlled state legislatures the power to decide what the election results will be from that state, regardless of how the people of that state voted. The minority, Mitch McConnell and fucking Trump, have effectively turned the system meant to protect us against us. Now, not to freak you out, but during this session, the Supreme Court will decide the future of affirmative action, LGBTQ rights, even the viability of elections is up for grabs. Fascism is a cult of the leader who promises national restoration in the face of supposed humiliation by immigrants, leftists, liberals, minorities, homosexuals, women, in the face of what the fascist leader says is a takeover of the country's media, cultural institutions, schools by these forces. It is all on the line now, folks, so vote. Of course, and check out the ACLU on the web at aclu.org if you want to try and stop the court from, well, who knows? In the past, we were great. Wherein did our greatness consist? In our military. And in the past, the dominant racial group ruled over others. And then the fascist leader says, that has been taken from you by the leftists and communists. They want to weaken our military. They want to weaken our greatness. In other news, Elon Musk can't make up his mind if he's coming or he's going. His SpaceX rocket ship is up, his Tesla stock is down, and the fate of Twitter is still hanging in the balance. 
Now, rather than go to court and get his ass handed to him, Musk is trying to revive his deal to buy Twitter for an outrageous $44 billion, a price he set as sort of a joke, but now it looks like it's coming back to bite him in the ass. But if he actually acquires Twitter, it's still unclear now who will handle the issue of free speech. His prior definition was something like, it's okay to lie and attack anyone, anyone but Elon Musk. So Twitter as we know it may be over or not. Musk has a nasty habit of changing his mind. I stayed silent as the atrocities committed against my mom were downplayed. I stayed silent when it came out that my father, Herschel Walker, had all these random kids across the country, none of whom he raised. And you know my favorite issue to talk about is father absence. Surprise, because it affected me. That's why I talk about it all the time, because it affected me. Family values, people, he has four kids, four different women, wasn't in the house raising one of them. He was out having sex with other women. And file under Ultra MAGA, Herschel Walker's abortion hypocrisy is probably not going to factor into his election prospects, because the sickening truth is that MAGA motherfuckers don't care, not even a little. In fact, they don't trust anyone who isn't a blatant fucking liar, a criminal, a cheat. And I said, Ron, you're at 3%. You can't win. He said, if you endorse me, I can. And I said, well, look, you know, you never know, but it's not going to be easy. Now, update. Ron DeSantis is living up to his charming nickname and not doing much to actually help the beleaguered residences of Hurricane Horrified Florida. I mean, he might as well be throwing rolls of toilet paper and paper towels and kisses as he minces around in his little white rain boots, crying that his opponents are politicizing the hurricane, but he's the one that's calling the state's hurricane relief fund, established in 2004, the Casey DeSantis Disaster Fund, after his wife. I mean, what the fuck? You know, uh, today we have one job, and only one job. And that's to make sure the people of Florida get everything that they need to fully, thoroughly recover. We're one of the few nations in the world that on a basis of a crisis we face, we're the only nation that comes out of it better than we went into it. And that's what we're going to do this time around. Come out of it better because we're, this is the United States of America. And I emphasize United. The Bidens were on hand Wednesday with an olive branch and extended federal aid. Now, I think he's done a good job, Biden said, that he and the governor have different political philosophies, but we've worked hand in glove. But the president didn't sneak in a jab at climate-denying Republicans' expense. I think the one thing this has finally ended is a discussion about whether or not that climate change is real and that we should do something about it, he said. I mean, you think? They have a lot of stupid people that vote in their primaries. I really, they really do. I mean, I'm, I'm not, you're not supposed to say that, but it's, it's obvious fact. And you know, when stupid people vote, you know who they nominate? Other stupid people. So quick note, on the international front, Putin has lost ground in Ukraine, and yet in Russia, he's formalized his absurd annexation with some sort of televised signing. But Zelensky and the Ukrainian forces are pushing to take back as much land as possible before winter sets in. In a bizarre but welcome twist of fate, the brutal Chechen army is now fighting alongside the Ukrainians, proving that at the end of the day, people want what is right. They want justice and safety from despots. They want the right to live and let live. 
Unless, of course, you're Putin. But Putin, your time is up. In a speech after annexing sections of Ukraine, Vladimir Putin attacked the U.S. for Satanism and denounced the many genders and fashion in the West. It was a hateful, unhinged speech which has many Americans calling him electable. And now for the main event. Today, we welcome to our show, Trigvi Olsen, strategist for the Lincoln Project and the founder of Viking Strategies, which provides clients worldwide with political risk and public affairs solution. Trigvi has spent his career working at senior levels on elections in over 30 countries. In the United States, he has served in senior leadership positions on three presidential campaigns, worked on numerous congressional elections, and also worked for all the Central Republican Party's political committees. Olson is a sought-after speaker. He regularly briefs leaders in politics, business, academia, and the media. And you can find him on Twitter at Trigvi Olson. So let's go now to that conversation. Okay, so Trigvi. I've heard you say that one of the reasons the United States had been prosperous for so long was because of our political stability. So, has what's happened with Trump and his attempted coup, the disintegration of the traditional Republican Party, an illegitimate Supreme Court, etc., etc., are these elements responsible for weakening our economy today? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that isn't talked about enough is the political extremism that we've seen in the Trump era and that, that has been ignited by it has undermined really the stability, our political stability is what our economic successes have been built upon. And I think, um, you know, when that stability, when you think about why is the U.S. the last refuge for capital, why do people come here to start businesses? because of the political stability that we have that you don't have in other places. And, um, and, and in addition to that, it impacts global stability. It is a real problem. It creates massive um, political risk in the United States that is not acknowledged. And corporate America should be far more aware of it because they become targets of it. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I've always said is it's not just the political stability of the country, but also the fact that we have a well-established legal system. You know that if you own, whether you're a foreigner or you're a natural-born citizen, um, you have certain rights, whether it's to your property, whether it's to your bank accounts, whatever it might be. You know where you stand. Now, one of the things that I find most interesting about you, Trey, is you're also involved with a company that provides uh, political risk and public affairs solutions. Do me a favor. Explain what you do to my listeners, including the fact that you're very involved with the Lincoln Project. So yep. if you would, why don't you take a moment, because I have a whole slew of questions for you. As it, re as it regards to our legal system and to our political system, because I think we're, I hate to say it, I think we're bullshitting people just a little bit too much. And that makes us like too many of these other foreign countries. As you know, Michael, my, my journey professionally has really been two paths. One is working in politics in the U.S. 
at senior levels. The other side of that is three decades of working around the world, primarily for an organization that was led by Senator McCain, um, with those fighting for democracy against autocracy. And that sort of, as I evolved, ended up with my business getting asked um, when we came back to the States full time to go in and do assessments of various countries when people were looking to invest. Um, you know, an example would be, you know, I had some some people, a client at one point who was looking to go into a Caribbean, a couple of Caribbean locations, potentially build large scale resorts, invest, you know, half a billion dollars in building these things. And they asked me to go in and assess, um, you know, would the prime ministers um, extort money out the, out of them? Was there risk that at some point um, that, you know, certain politicians who had been highly corrupt were going to come back? Um, would their investments be safe? Um, in other cases, I've been asked to go into places and assess, um, you know, where they have uh, factories, what's, what's the potential for, for political violence and unrest to occur? Um, so that's the really the political risk side of, of what I do. And, you know, you and I were talking, there is far more political risk in the United States than people recognize when you have the political instability that we're seeing and the extremism that we're seeing. So let me give you the example. One of the things that we've seen recently is the confiscation or the seizure of certain assets that are belonging to individuals that are deemed Russian oligarchs, mm -hmm. right? They are placed on what's called an OFAC sanctions list. Now, let me just give you one example. A $100 million yacht was seized in Spain based upon the fact that the allegations, it was Victor Vexelberg's yacht, but that boat, that yacht, was really Vladimir Putin's. And we're seeing exact examples of the same exact uh, type of examples, he, even here in the United States with assets. I mean, there was a raid on uh, a property right across the street from me that was allegedly owned by Vexelberg, but it wasn't. It was owned by somebody else. I don't know how the press got that wrong. I mean, fucking God forbid, right? The press gets something wrong, as well as a house in Southampton of Long Island. Also, the allegation is that these assets are really Vladimir Putin's. Now, if in fact that they are Vladimir Putin's assets, I'm 100% in favor of seizing whatever you want. Because they're not U.S. citizens, they're not protected under the Constitution. The Constitution only protects U.S. citizens. But there has to be due process. You can't just go ahead and seize somebody's assets and not give them a chance to explain or to have the government demonstrate that this is Vladimir Putin's money. What if hypothetically, and I don't want to use, it doesn't matter who the oligarch allegedly is. Doesn't the United States government have an obligation to demonstrate that those assets are actually Vladimir Putin's other than just saying, well, we want to put pressure on Putin and the way we're going to do it is we're going to go after his friends. The reason I asked that question is kind of compare him 
to Donald Trump, because that's who Donald Trump wants to be. He really does want to be Vladimir Putin. Do you think Donald Trump would give two shits if they took everybody's yachts just simply because the allegation is that you're friends of his, despite the fact Trump has no friends? I would presume Putin has no friends either. It's all transactional. How does something like this happen? And doesn't this go to corroborate the statement that I just made, that our political instability, coupled with the way that the laws are now acting and the way that they're behaving in the courts, isn't this going to create additional financial hardship? Well, as you rightly, right, rightfully identified, part of the problem becomes that the slippery slope. And, and I don't think anyone would be against Vladimir Putin's assets being seized. But nope. we have to be bigger than that. We have rule of law. Rule of law is the foundation of us having faith in each other, which is the foundation of democracy. And what we have to keep in mind, what becomes dangerous, and I say this all the time when I speak on the topic, extremism and illiberalism by one side becomes the rationale and the justification for extremism and illiberalism on the other side, or even autocracy on the other side. And and you're absolutely right. One of the in in the rush to do something, um, when we start violating those foundational principles, things like rule of law, freedom of the press, those things upon which our democracy is built, um, that creates a political instability because there are people, even if it's done with good intention, we still have to follow those rules because if we don't, we create the opportunity for those who have nefarious intentions. And I think, you know, Trump was constantly trying to use the process in nefarious ways to use that as their justification for doing the same thing um, for their own means and design because as you, you know you're pointing out what you're pointing out is actors like putin donald trump there's zero sum actors they have one interest gaining power and maintaining power for their own ends um and and that is that is the the, the that is the foundation of if you were to look at the through line for all the autocrats that you see around the world and throughout history that is the through line um but they're constantly using any example that they can find to become their rationale for what they're doing. You know, if I wanted to speak or represent one of these individuals who had their assets confiscated or seized, there's an application that I would have to make to the to OFAC, the Office of Foreign Asset Control. And they would never give it to me. First of all, you have to be a lawyer. They really have this thing set up nice on behalf of lawyers. Only a lawyer could actually represent someone uh, who's on the list, the OFAC list. Despite the fact that that individual may really have no ability to get the message out there. And what's the message that I would myself want to be saying? I, again, like you, like everyone... If, in fact, that it's Putin's money, fuck it. Take it. I don't care. Give it to whoever you want. Give the money. Take the assets, sell it, and pass the money along to Ukraine so it doesn't come out of the U.S. taxpayers' you know, um, dollars. Yep. I'm absolutely 100% with that. 
But don't we have to establish that it's Putin's? And we're not doing that. And anybody who tries to go ahead and to do that could ultimately be sanctioned by the federal government for inquiring, for bringing up something which to me is just so fundamental. Um, it should be, it's due process. You just can't go in and raid somebody or see somebody's assets simply because you want to punish somebody else from that country. Because rest assured, they could do it to any one of us by claiming that you're a friend of Donald Trump's and we find him now on our OFAC list. Right. Therefore, whatever asset that you may have there, we have the right to take. And I think it becomes a slippery slope. And I would have expected more from the United States than to allow stuff like this to happen. Yeah, I think I, your point, well, not only that, but think about how around the world we... We as a nation or, you know, generations have said rule of law needs to be a central element of are you part of the community of nations in good standing? And you're, you know, you're raising extraordinarily valid points because there, there tends to be, um, and, and this is something that autocratic actors play on. There tends to be a rush sometimes that in the interest of doing good, we're going to massage the rules. And um, there's no doubt that, that that is something that we have to always be cognizant of, or we create the opportunity for them to say, well, what about? Uh, you know, another example of that is, quite honestly, is when, when we've had these situations where we apply sanctions where we say we're not we're not going to give any visas to people coming from country X or place X, rather than saying it's the bad guys who aren't we aren't going to let come, but average people who aren't part of the problem, we should be encouraging them to come and see. You know that hypocrisy. Right. That hypocrisy is something that um, we have to be incredibly cognizant of in these times um, and the points that you're making, we have to be incredibly cognizant of that because if we don't, it does end up empowering people like Trump to go and, and become martyrs and victims. You know, Trey, I wanted to say this because it just dawned on me. We were so fast. And when I say we, I'm talking about as America, as uh, whether it was Congress or our Department of Justice, whoever made the determination uh, that these assets should be seized or um, confiscated, etc. And again, blaming it on the term Russian oligarch. What most people don't realize in Russia, they don't call themselves oligarchs, no different than Jeff Bezos doesn't call himself an American oligarch or Zuckerberg or any of the other right. enormously wealthy individuals who have companies. Now, I'm not saying that they are exactly the same, but I do want to point out that if we held every single one of these Russian oligarchs to the standard that is being employed by the U.S. government and other governments in terms of the seizure, since January 1... There have been six Russian oligarchs who have died mysteriously, mm -hmm. including one that for some reason, may, what did he do? He lost a billion from his $50 billion net worth, jumped out of right. or was thrown out of a 10th story hospital window. He's the right. sixth one. 
oligarch, mega billionaire who somehow died mysteriously of a suicide. I think that kind of tells you that maybe they're not friends of Putin and maybe that the yachts or the homes that they have, despite the fact that you may hate them because they're uber rich, right, doesn't mean that their assets should be taken without any form of due process. And when I saw, you know, your bio, I, I was just so interested in asking you your opinion on it, considering you've spent so much time over the, you know, over the years traveling through multiple countries and working um, not necessarily in this specific area, right. but working no. uh, in this genre. I agree with you completely. I mean, the rule of law is is an essential piece. And, you know, one of the things, I mean, it's a social media environment, and I bet you get this off. I mean, you, you lived it in some ways. But that mob mentality to say, we, you know, we know the truth, and we don't need rule of law and process and all the rest of it. Um, it, it's mob mentality. And, and in truth, the genius of the founding fathers, you know, who holds power is zero sum, right? You either have power or you don't. The genius of the founding fathers is they wrapped it in checks and balances and rule of law and the judicial system and all the rest. And, and when we have people who rush to throw that away because they think they know the truth, then we're no better than these places where where anarchy reigns and or where autocracy reigns, right? Yes, I totally agree. I mean, that's what we saw in you know with the Third Reich when they went ahead. Absolutely. They just decided, you know, whether it was um, their gold teeth all the way to their property, their animals, you know, their cattle, you know, their um, their paintings, etc. So I I think it's a bad. I think it's a bad precedent, you know, that we're setting when it comes to this. I think we really should be protecting everyone's rights until they're proven. Um, right. And then you take whatever you're entitled to. So let me ask you this trick. Yep. Looking at the fascist trend that's going on now in Europe, I mean, the new, mm-hmm. the new Italian prime minister, then you have, you know, Liz Truss in England, Poland's lean now towards the right. And now, of course, it's happening here in the United States. Mm-hmm. In your opinion, is there any way to stem this tide of fascism now that we've moved so far in that direction? Or will it take a war or a revolution in order to get rid of it? Well, I'm by nature an optimist. And I, I can Please. tell you, having, having you and I may not get the- along. <laughs> I'm, I think I'm a we'll fucking get along pessimist. Well, Michael. Yeah, the, I'm a um, fucking pessimist, man. <laughs> well, sometimes I'm a pessimist before I'm an optimist. So, um, <laughs> you know, the, the reality is this, that, you know, things can change fast for better or worse. I mean, I think history demonstrates that. Um, the, the rise of extremism, particularly on the right, is happening. And, and a lot of the grievance and grievances around which right-wing uh, fascism or extremism, radicalization occurs are around grievances contrived. You know, they're imagined grievances. Um, the key, are we doomed? I don't think we're doomed, but, but it requires those who may have very different opinions in that game we know of democracy to say we're setting this stuff aside and we're going to work together to defend democracy. And I'll, I'll give you two examples. I just got done reading 
um, a great Stephen Ambrose's book on D-Day because I took my daughters to Normandy to see that. And I'm pretty sure that those boys, when they were storming on to the beaches in Normandy, weren't asking each other who they voted for in the last election. Right. They were there to mm-hmm. fight for each other and survive. Our, our best moments as Americans and as America are when we stand together and set all that stuff aside and say, we're Americans first and we're everything else second. Um, and we're seeing some of that. I mean, it's it, maybe it's small. Maybe people don't fully get it. But I bet you Benny Thompson and Liz Cheney vote the same way in Congress. 15% of the time, but they're standing right there seeking to try and understand together what happened on one six in an honest way. And that there again, that's, that's the best of who we can be. It's just, it's a question of, can we find it within ourselves? Can Europeans find it within themselves to say, you know what, we've got to stand together and confront this. We've got to speak truth to power. We have to do all the things that you do to confront extremism. Yeah. Well, look, first and foremost, I think um, Normandy may not be. How, how old are you? Are you girls? My girls? My girls are 10 and 13. Yeah, you may think about Disney uh, next. Uh, Normandy is a wonderful place. <laughs> I'm pretty sure <laughs> they'd rather have Cinderella's castle. That's all right. You know, I, th- <laughs> I think they'd rather go to Cinderella's castle. Yeah, I want to go a, and I want to talk about Donald Duck. Yeah, I don't blame you. Right. <laughs> Let me ask you this, because you posted on your Twitter something uh-huh. that you entitle your seven rules to save the democracy. Would you do me a favor and explain to my audience what these rules are and how the average citizen can utilize your rules so that they, too, can take an active role in maintaining the democracy? Yeah. So the first rule. So the rules, let me the genesis of the rules really comes out of working with people around the world who've been fighting for democracy in places that don't have it um, or in places where it's been at risk. And then I took them at some point and said, I need to apply these in the U.S. The first rule is you have to play the game you're in, right? We're used to playing in the United States the win-win game of democracy, where we can be political opponents, but we set that aside and we work towards, you know, trying to solve problems and we know there'll be another election and we might have differences of opinion. The autocratic game and the game that we're in with those who want to take power permanently and discard, you know, the win-win is a zero-sum game. Um, and so we have to understand that, that our democracy will either survive or it will fail. And that foundationally is a game that's very different from one where you and I can disagree, but we can find common ground for the better. But you know that that doesn't exist anymore, Trig. And let's not only blame the Republicans, right? Uh, Being a lifelong Democrat myself, I see the same thing with some Democrats as well. It has become a zero-sum game. When I sat before the House Oversight Committee, one of the things someone sent me a clip of myself onto it, basically um, beating down Jimbo Jordan and Mark the Moron Meadows, when I turned around I said, Do you realize that not one of you, not one Republican, asked me a single question about Donald Trump? Not not one. 
Yet every Democrat has asked me only questions about Trump. The Republicans sat there and they decided to denigrate me. Why? Because, again, they needed to make it a zero-sum game. And I don't want to put myself as being the denominator for this whole thing. This is so much bigger than just myself. This is a this is a national issue. We cannot govern. Government cannot govern if, in fact, it's a zero-sum game. That's why when you see Biden out there right now, and for this, I give him nothing but kudos, out there putting forth bipartisan legislation, like what just passed the other day. This is exactly what we need. No country, no government can exist if it's either I win and you lose or you lose and I win. It just can't. Yeah, exactly. And you know what, though? Here's, here's where, where I would say I'm a little optimistic. You're a lifelong Democrat up until Donald Trump came on the scene. I, I'm still a conservative, right? But we're standing here together having a conversation with an audience that's made up of like-minded people who are concerned about what's going on. Some probably disaffected Republicans, some probably Democrats, right? That is, that is people setting aside and on, and we're having it in the, in the, in the context of a conversation about the other side, you know, those who, who want to impose their will being a threat. That is, that is playing the game we're in. And, and that is people, you know, it's a win-win, right? Like, so, um, but you are right. The fact, I, I actually, it's funny you say that because I actually, I thought about that, that when you got, you did not have a single Republican. And I don't think anybody who sat in front of the House Oversight Committee had a single Republican ask them a question about facts that were inconvenient for them. And, and that is different. Um, we have to all acknowledge when there's people on both sides who are speaking out against extremism and those who are being zero sum that they deserve credit from all of us, regardless of what partisan differences we have. And that really is a part of what I mean by playing the game we're in. And and here's the other thing. You're you're a master of number two. Number two is speak always speak truth to power. That's exactly what you did, right? You came out and you were speaking unpopular truths to the masses. Um, and that's rule number two. You got and, st- and still to power. and still doing it. Oh, absolutely. Every day. Yep. Yep. And still doing it. And I won't and I won't stop. Yeah. For exactly that purpose. Yep. I mean, that is that is and and it gets to it isn't really a rule, but it's one of the things I tell people, you know, you have to look at the rules and say, what can I bring to the fight for democracy? What can I do to stand up to these guys? And everybody's got different roles and different things they can bring. The fact that you were speaking truth to power, I was saying to you before we got online. I was asked to give a presentation kind of when the Lincoln Project came together about what Donald Trump was going to do. I used you speaking to po- truth to power as part of what I was saying, which was you were saying, you know, this guy's not going to concede even if he loses. And I'm like, you know, I was saying to anybody who listened, Michael Cohen knows, knows Donald Trump better than anybody. If he's saying this, we have to take that as a fact. You were speaking. That is truth to power. And that's the power of it. Right. Because you end up touching people you and I had never met before today. You, you had touched my thinking by speaking truth to power. So that's speaking truth to power. Number three is an important one. Don't give the other side. Let me, let me also, let me just, let me just add one. Let me just add one thing, Trey. Yeah, let me just add one thing to that. 
Um, mm-hmm. Speaking truth to power does yep. not come without consequences. And it's why most people elect not to do it. You know, the, the pain that I've caused my wife, my children, my family, mm-hmm. myself, um, it exists every single day. My, my only, my fervent hope is that at the end of the day, truth wins. Because what we're right. seeing now a lot with Trump is that power has a way of rearing its ugly head for victory as well. So go ahead. Let's go to number three. Don't hand the autocrats battering rams with which to beat you. Don't hand the autocrats battering rams with which to beat you. You know, this is something that the left in the U.S. doesn't do a very good job of um, at times, right? Like, and, and this is not unusual. But, like, how often, and you, you'll have great insights into this, how often would people on the left say some things about Donald Trump that were going so far over the edge that it actually worked to his advantage, that he could use them, he could use that? I mean, he's constantly looking for those opportunities to say, see, these people are exactly what I, I'm saying they are. And um, that, it, it really is important. You know, I'm, I grew up in Minneapolis, St. Paul, policing in Minneapolis has always been a problem. But when you had people who are talking, we're going to abolish the police and get rid of it, that just becomes fodder for those on the right and makes it really hard for those who are trying to speak power on the other side that, that this has to be addressed, that it's a real grievance, right? You know, and then let's just go, yeah, so let's just go real quickly. Uh, yep. Four is understand authoritarians must live in a truth-free present. Then rule five you have, and I like this one, practice zero-sum judo. Use their tactics against them, um, right? I, I kind of like that. Anybody who understands judo, it's obviously using somebody else's force against them, uh, whether the person's bigger or not. Uh, six, you refer to as the Stalin rule. Stand together with anyone who will join you to disturb, disrupt, and diminish the illiberal structures, um, explain that one, because that one was a little perplexing. Well, so at the end of the day, I, Churchill, and I say this having a wife who's and relatives who are Lithuanian. So you can about imagine how popular Stalin is with them. Um, but the, the bottom line is, if you're facing the most reprehensible human being who's ever transversed the planet, Adolf Hitler, as Roosevelt and Churchill were doing, you make allies and you keep Stalin afloat even if it's to, to win that battle so that you can confront the next one with them. Um, and so, you know, I speak a lot to various groups and it's funny when I talk to ones on the Democrat side, you know, I hear a lot of them say, I really, I'm conflicted. I really didn't like Dick Cheney, but I really respect Liz Cheney. That's the Stalin rule. You can set aside all the things you disagree with the Cheneys about, because when it comes to the fight for democracy, Nancy Pelosi, Liz Cheney, we're all on the same side. Interesting. And then, of course, finally, rule seven, wake up every day thinking, where can the vertical power structure be exposed, confronted, and destabilized? Yeah. Where? Yeah. <laughs> um, I think you're, you know how you, you know how you do it? You, you, you bait fights between them about who's most pure, Right. You try and you try and destabilize the vertical by get them 
by getting them fighting amongst themselves. Um, that's how you destabilize it. And so, yep. And every day people have to wake up and think, all right, how can I use these with what I have? And each of us are going to have different ways. You know, me speaking truth to power, I can do that. And some audiences will listen. Your power in speaking truth to power was the masses were going to listen to you because they knew you understood Donald Trump closer than anybody, you know, just about anybody else. Yes, except one of the things that Donald Trump is so adept at doing, especially when you have this entire group, this RNC and a massive swath of Republicans that are willing to perpetuate the lies. What they do is they denigrate you, they, you know, they lie about you, and they constantly promote that lie through all of their social media outlets, whether it's the Fox News, Newsmax, OANs, on their websites, anywhere that Republicans, especially Trump, are so good at it. And just remember going back to Little Marco, Lying Ted, Crooked Hillary, all the various different names, Low Energy, Jeb, Remember all the nicknames he gave for people, including me. And the bad part is, and it's something I talk about in this book that is coming out October 11th that I wrote called Revenge, How Donald Trump Weaponized the U.S. Department of Justice Against His Critics. What they did, and you saw it, every single American that watched that House Oversight Committee hearing, every single Republican led off with the same line. Mr. Cohen, you are a tax cheat, you're a liar, and so... Let me break that down for you. And I do this in much greater depth in the book. What did I lie about? I lied to Congress about the number of times that I spoke to Donald Trump about the failed Trump Tower Moscow project. I stated three when in fact it was 10. Okay, I acknowledge I did that. Great. That's why someone should go to prison? And how about the guy who told me to lie? How about the emails that I gave to the members of Congress, that I gave to the court, I gave to everybody, showing Jared was on that email making changes, Ivanka, uh, Jay Sekulow, um, Abby Lowell, you know, Ty Cobb. Everybody was on those emails making changes to how they wanted my statement to be presented. Right? That's great. I'm the only one that ends up suffering for it. And then, of course, you know, it, it goes on tax cheat. And I talk about this at length. I've never filed a late tax return in my life. I never not. I never didn't pay taxes. Was there an error? Sure, there was. All right. Um, was there an error that was made by my accountant? Absolutely. Every dollar, every single dollar was in Capital One, which was located the base of the building I live in. Not overseas like Manafort in the Ukraine. There were no fake invoices wire. That's why the money was there. I paid that deficiency before my even my sentencing, but got no credit for it. Why? Because that's what happens when you have a president who doesn't want to be a president, but wants to be an autocrat, wants to be a dictator, a monarch, a supreme leader, and needs to eradicate his critics, especially, as you appropriately stated, somebody who knows so much about him. Um, what he's been successful in doing is trying to destroy my credibility. Yet every day, new information drips out that validates everything that I've been saying all along. And hopefully, I'll get my FOIA documents from government and be able to prove it with their own words. So let me then just move on, Trig, and ask you this. 
you posted you posted that, and I'm going to paraphrase it here. The best way to stand up and stop Putin is to demonstrate that we live the values of democracy. It is little to do with fear and appeasing autocrats at home or abroad and everything to do with faith in each other. So my question to you is, how do we have faith in each other when so many still believe in the big lie? Well, we have to, we have to demonstrate it each day, right? So, you know, a lot of that is, is trusting each other. Um, and with the big lie, I'll tell you this. So, so one of the things that's important for people to, to understand when you're dealing with people who are extremists, right? Who like your friend, your family member who believes the big lie and buys into Trump. You're never going to get, you're never going to shame them into holding a different position. You can only get them to look back at what they believed was shame. And so the key is you got to create cognitive dissonance and, and, and you got to lead them to where they do it within themselves. And, you know, a good example of this is my mother. My mother was all in on Trump, right? It wasn't until Donald Trump referred to Vladimir Putin as a genius for going into Ukraine that she called me up one day and she said, what the hell is he talking about? Right. And um, I used that. I started, well, what do you mean? Well, what did he say? Well, why do you think that he's 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 wrong about that? Right. It was all about getting her to find it in herself that what she believed was not the answers that he was giving and not who he was. And with time. You know, she's backed off it. That's the key. You gotta, it's all about helping people find it within themselves to get them out. And it isn't easy. It's hard. No, no. And unfortunately, (laughs) as I, as I put in many of my tweets, um, as my grandmother used to always say, you can't argue with stupid. And I have so many friends. I, I, in fact, there are some I, I just can't speak to anymore. Friends who I've been friendly with since we were 15 years old. They're still all in for Trump. And I turn around, and he happens to be a foreigner. And I said to him, how fucking stupid can you be? How could you back somebody who will turn around and put forth a Muslim ban? Right. So you can't come right. to the country because right. of your religious conviction. Now, if you want to say that hypothetically, this country right now is on ban list because of things that are going on there that could pose a national security risk to Americans and the United States of America as a whole. I'm all in for that if you could demonstrate right. it. But to ban a religion simply because you're an Islamophobe. Seriously, next they'll turn around and he'll say, you know, no Jews can come in. Why? Because he's an anti-Semite or any of the other nonsense that he did. Right. How about and I would say to him, why don't you name one thing that Trump passed? One good thing that he did. He built the wall. Fucking wall are you talking about? (laughs) What wall? What wall right. did he build? Well, you know, he was, he's putting up the wall in the, you know, in our southern border. No, he hasn't. And right. Mexico's not paying for it. Yeah, but look how good the economy is doing. That's another one that I heard from him. And I said to him, that's great. That's great. It's all about. <laughs> right. You're basically what you're saying is you're willing to trade. Our democracy, the Constitution of the United States, to a wannabe autocrat 
for a dollar. Do you know what happens to that dollar when he becomes the autocrat? It's no longer yours, right? right. He's standing online, right, the way they used to do it in Russia, waiting for toilet paper and shoes. That's, That's the saddest part. And Trump would enjoy it. As long as he could be like Putin and extort all the businesses. That's like why I don't understand Elon Musk. Doesn't he understand if Donald Trump ever became the autocrat that he wants to become, Elon Musk would end up working for Donald for a dollar and all of Elon's money, Trump would just confiscate. And they say, you know what, I'll leave you with something, but I'm taking 95, 96, 97 percent of it, whatever. Because it's his choice. It's his decision. He, he holds, as an autocrat, all the power. You don't like well, it? Oh, let me have the army show up to your house. Well, that's the whole thing with autocrats, right? And I'd be interested in your thoughts on this. Like, the first people that autocrats go after and send their, send their mobs or their, their goons after are the people who've been most loyal to them. And you're, you know, and, and I've always believed that the Mike Pence thing had to do with him trying to send a message to all other Republicans. If he's, if I'm, I'm willing to hang Mike Pence, so I'm willing to hang you too. That's what it really was about, not about process. I think Trump was smart enough to know that, well, maybe not, but like that, you know, constitutionally Pence couldn't do it, but it didn't really matter. He wanted to send the symbol. I'm willing to take you all down if I don't get what I want. And that's why Mm -hmm. they use Mike Pence. Yep. And by the way, he did it against me. He did it against Rudy. He's done it against, he's done it against, Donald Trump doesn't care, as I always say, about anyone or anything other than himself. And when the shit starts hitting the fan in this upcoming October case, uh, that's now currently at the DA's office, rest assured, you're going to start to see Trump battling Don, Ivanka, Eric. You're going to see Eric battling Don and Ivanka and Don, Eric and, and, and uh, and Don and Donald and it's going to be who's going to be pushing the other one down the slope so that they could be first in line to provide information because that's just how they're all wired. But let me just move on for a second, Trig, and ask sure. you this: I know that you supported Joe Biden confronting the American public with the truth about where the current GOP and the MAGA movement is going, mm-hmm. but is it enough? Because polls say Americans are concerned about the democracy. But then I read the Wall Street Journal or, for that matter, any right-leaning publication, and all they talk about is the economy. So my question to you, are voters really worried about the existential threat of losing the democracy or simply kitchen table issues? Well, I think voters are concerned about kitchen table issues. The key thing is, and, you know, with with the Lincoln Project, we try and do this all the time, you know, and Steve Bannon is what he is, but he's not stupid when he said, you know, if you can peel 4% off of Donald Trump's total of Republicans, you know, Donald Trump's going to lose the election. We look at what we call the Bannon lines and the Bannon lines tend to be the people who, you know, are Republicans or people who watch Fox News all the time, but have, you know, incongruent pieces for example, you know, it's, they watch Fox News all the time, but they're a pro-choice household or they think the election was legitimate. The key thing to winning elections, like the one in Pennsylvania, is convince enough of them that, you know, Doug Mastriano is not who they are and get them to either stay home and skip the race 
or ideally vote for Josh Shapiro, in which case it's two votes. And and so that, yeah, economic issues may be dominant. And and for a lot of people who watch Fox News and are going to vote Republican anyway, you know, they're going to say it's all about the economy for me. The key thing is the small numbers that you can move around other issues. Um, and, and, you know, you don't have to get a huge percent, 4% and, you know, 4 to 6% and the election is very different. And, um, you know, we did that. We did that in 2020 in my home state of Wisconsin. Um, we, we saw in the last three weeks that, that, Donald Trump was pulling people back with his, his primarily male Republicans who were fed up with him. They were starting to come back to him because he was demagoguing on the, the abolish the police stuff. And we went in and spent a ton of money reminding them why they didn't like Donald Trump. And I'll, I, I can't prove it quantitatively, but I'll go to my grave knowing that we got more than 17,000 that Joe Biden won the state by. To, to stay with Biden rather than go back to Trump. So that's that's what I mean by that, really. Mm-hmm. Well, then let me ask you this. When you look at the state of journalism and how polarized the news outlets have become, I have to wonder how and why the standard of truthful journalism has fallen apart. I talk a lot about this in the book Revenge, a lot, because I yep. blame media in part for a lot of the shit that happened to me where are the checks and balances when it comes to journalism and how for instance i mean how can fox news get away with lying to the public night after night i mean it's essentially state-run television of propaganda i mean is there any way for us to stop it that's a really, really good question. And I mean, put it in the context of some of the things that Tucker Carlson says on a nightly basis, right? Like, let's, let's I, do it. I don't have a good answer to that because the, it's a really, that's a really hard and slippery slope, right? And, and Trump played that game. I mean, for God's sakes, you think about some of the reporters who he'd single out and then he was calling and saying, Hey, no hard feelings. Here's, here's, you know. Here's a story. And then he demagogue them that they were fake news. Um, I don't have the the journalist journalism question is a really hard one, because I think what I would say is, you know, some of the grievances on the right originally about the news media in the if you're to go back to the 70s might have been true. The problem is, is that they're not that true now. Uh, they're not true now. There's plenty of right-wing news organizations. The problem is we now have, like they have in a lot of places in Europe, where everybody self-selects news. And then and then the news can create targets like you uh, were and like others are who they just start the drumbeat. Yeah, that's, it's a real threat. I mean, it's, to go take the conversation full circle, it's part of that sovereign risk economically that we have in the U.S. because quite quite honestly, it can be used against corporations too, right? Their employees are made up of people who are Republicans and Democrats and extremists, and and there's plenty of corp of media entities that are willing to make corporations the target of what they're doing. 
Well, it's true. And then you start to see, you know, the targeting against advertisers for for these. I'm not for that censorship. However, I have a real fundamental problem when I see people like Tucker Carlson or Sean Hannity. And, you know, they make these outrageous statements that blow my mind because neither of them are stupid. I know both of them, especially Sean. Right, I had known him very well. He's not a stupid guy. And some of the things that are coming out of his mouth, how does he not turn around as a host of the show and ask Donald when he said that he could think the declassification of documents if he so chose? How do you not come back and say, wait, wait, wait. Donald, did you just say that you could declassify declassify a top secret document just by thinking it, right? right? But he doesn't do that. Why? Because he's dishonest. And Tucker is even worse. And then sometimes you watch Newsmax, and who do they have on that dumbass shit? You get Laura Trump, one of the dumbest people. I never thought I'd meet anybody stupider than Eric until Laura. I, I never saw anything like it. You know, she comes out, it's all about placating her father-in-law, who disliked her intensely at the beginning, didn't want Eric to marry her, nothing like that. All of a sudden, and he tells, it's not me saying it because I'm mean. Okay, fine, I'm mean. It's not me saying it. Anybody that was in the Trump uh, Hotel in D.C. for a fundraising event, listen to Donald tell the story about how he didn't like her. And then right. one day, he sees this girl on television who's saying the nicest things. She's saying <laughs> the nicest things. And I'm saying, who is this? And then the name comes up at the bottom. Could you imagine this asshole is saying he doesn't even know who his daughter-in-law is? Right? right. And it's Laura. And so he goes, then it became a love fest. So in order right. to become a love fest with Donald, you have to blow smoke up his ass. All right? yeah. Which is why right. you have people like Mark Meadows and Jim Jordan and the Josh Hawleys, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, and all of these radical right morons. Because if you don't, he goes after you or he ignores you, which is why Sean Hannity is putting up with Donald's bullshit, because it's good for his ratings and for his pocket. This is a problem with journalism. Stop worrying about feeding the fucking shareholders additional, you know, Money each and every quarter. Worry about telling the fucking truth. And if you make a mistake, fucking own it. Not one right. journalist has come out and turned around and acknowledged that their statements about me going to Prague and paying off Russian compromats and having a home in, uh, in a, 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 a dacha in Sochi directly next door to Putin are all lies. That... It's all lies. Not one of them have acknowledged. In fact, there were several journalists who turned around and even lied and stated that I told them that I had been in, um, in Prague. One of them says that I was in Prague in like 19, uh, or 1999 or two, something like that. Right. And, so, and then you had McClatchy who did it. It is abhorrent. The way that these journalists behave today, because there's no liability, there's no accountability, there's no responsibility. And who's the king of all of that? Right? The Mandarin right. Mussolini himself, Donald. Well, so let me then move on. It's, to it's, there's too many people in politics and in journalism 
where and what you're describing with Hannity, I'll put this, if there's anybody, I don't know if anybody listens to Hannity and your podcast, but here's what I'd say. This is a guy who's saying what he's saying because he's taking his 30 pieces of silver. That's what they, that's the, the evangelicals who listen to him should understand. Sean Hannity's just the guy who's taking his 30 pieces of silver. So then let me ask you this, because we're about to have an election in just over a month. And 60% of Americans are going to have an election denier on the ballot where they live. That's fucking scary. I mean, could you imagine 60% of Americans are going to have an election denier on the ballot where they live? And by now, don't most of the election deniers running for office know that the 2020 election was not stolen? And if so... Why haven't they changed their position and told the public the truth? Um, well, first of all, it's fucking crazy, right? Like, it's, it's, it's completely fucking Well crazy. said, Trig. Well said. <laughs> the, um, the, <laughs> it, it, no, I mean, seriously, like, it, there's part of you that it just sort of leaves you speechless, right? Um, I think, you know, it's sort of, the, it's the Mark Twain thing. The lie will travel a long ways, and the truth d- doesn't move very far. But I think it's, it's critical for all of us to understand we have to pick our battles smart, right? Like, so, you know, Mastriano versus Shapiro or Whitmer versus Tudor Dixon, ones that can impact our, even our ability to have a presidential election in 2020, we have to win those races. There are going to be more election deniers on the, in the Republican caucus in Congress after this election than there were before this election. And for no other reason than all the people who voted for impeachment and all those people are being replaced with election deniers. But we just have to keep speaking the truth about it. And, and I will say, you know, one of the powers of speaking the truth you know, if you look at what happened after the one six committee held their hearings in June, the percentage of Republicans, even if it was a small percentage, it was about eight or 10 percent who said that, that what happened on one six was wrong and that the that Joe Biden actually won increased by that, you know, 10 percent of Republicans. Well, that's a big deal, right, because those become the people that can be picked off. And, and who are going to say, you know what, that's not who I am. So we just have to hope and we have to do everything we can, which is what we're doing at the Lincoln Project, to convey that message to those people. And Democrats need to be smarter about conveying it as well, right? There's sometimes on the Democrat side, there's just this belief that if we pass all kinds of policy and, and we ignore, you know, we just turn out our own people, they're going to win. they got to communicate to Republicans and they got to understand that to have a majority, they're going to elect people. I, I'm here in Virginia right now. People like Abigail Spanberger and Elaine Loria, who are not going to have the same set of values as AOC or or members of Congress who come from urban areas, but they can't concede those races because what they're going to get as an alternative is what you're saying, election deniers. Well, good, because you just set me for my next question to you. Okay. Something I talk about a lot. First of all, let me just say, so I guess then it's your opinion that the January 6th committee has been effective 
uh, in educating part of the public, which obviously will be helpful in the upcoming election, yeah. midterm and the general, correct? Yeah, yeah I, sure. I, 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 mean, I agree with you. I agree. Move numbers. Yeah. So then let me go, let me ask you this, because this is on the point that you're making. Here on Mea Culpa, and I, I say it a lot, and I don't want to be repetitive, but I have no choice. We're somewhat harsh on Jamie Harrison, who is mm-hmm. the head of the DNC. And interestingly enough, I spoke with a member of Congress the other day, and I won't mention who it is, Democrat. And this m- member of Congress stated to me, you know, I've been here for a while. I mean, this isn't my first term. I've actually never met him. And I've never spoken to him. And I find that horrific, to be very honest with you. So my question to you, because I'm very hard on Jamie Harrison in the way that the DNC puts out messaging, if at all. And I ask you this because you're an expert in political strategy. So if you were asked to advise the DNC, and I mean, for all I know, you might be doing that already. No, I, I am but not. If but if you could give, if you could give the Democrats, Jamie Harrison, the DNC, a game plan to help us win in November, and remember, we're talking only about a month away, what would it look like? Well, right now, they, I mean, and I believe they're doing this. I, w- I hope they're doing this. They, they have to be focused, first and foremost, on a turnout of their base. Um, and and a lot of that is not about issues. It's just about the blocking and tackling of politics, getting people on doors and those kinds of things. It's also critically important in the states that are going to decide this. They're primarily purple states, places like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona, Nevada. They need to be reminding all of the Democrats that that those states and quite frankly, the United States is a slightly right of center leaning nation on the aggregate. And so they need the messaging being about positive things that Biden has done that connect with those voters who are going to be making a choice between Mandela Barnes and Ron Johnson. And they know that Ron Johnson is an asshole but they're not sure if they can trust that Mandela Barnes isn't going to go to Congress and be a far left wing senator because, it, you know, the people who decided the election in Wisconsin are ultimately and same true in Pennsylvania, Fetterman versus Oz, right? They need to know that those candidates are going to go and, and represent all of them and not not, you know, have an agenda. You're not just going to win. Democrats aren't going to win just with the base. They got to get left of center leaning independents and right of center leaning in conservative leaning independents to vote for their candidates. And they have to reassure that it isn't just going to be far left stuff to those voters. How well they're doing that? It varies somewhat by campaign. I think John Fetterman is running an amazing campaign. And I say that as a guy who at one point in my career ran campaigns for, you know, Mitch McConnell's world or helped with that. Right. So John Fetterman's running a great campaign. Um, some of these others, though, you know, Katie Hobbs in in Arizona. Carrie Lake is scary. Michael, she's scary. You look at what she thinks. Very scary. Katie Hobbs, Katie Hobbs thinks if I run. As, as kind of a progressive gubernatorial candidate, she's going to win. It's Arizona. 
start taking the wood and say to those voters in the center who don't want to vote for Carrie Lake that, hey, I'm going to be a governor for all of Arizona. Unlike her, who's going to govern for the 30% who deny elections, who mm-hmm. want to take away women's right to choice, who want to go after marriage equality and all of those things. But she, well, they're not, they got, that's, that's what they got to do. And, See, and some of them I are could, doing if it, I but could a make, lot of them aren't. If I can make the suggestion, if I was the DNC, if I can tell Jamie what to do, Jamie, here's what you need to do. Over the course of the next 30 days, concentrate solely on the Gen Zs, on the 18 to 21-year-olds, all right? I don't know how exactly you do it. Maybe you start sending people towards colleges and so on. Just start having rallies in the middle of the street talking about women's rights, uh, Government has no place in your bedroom, you know, and all of the other crazy shit that the Republicans have in mind. Unless you're white male, you're going to be disenfranchised, especially if you're of color. That's just that's just who and what they are. And get the Gen Z's involved. And then let's talk just straight to women. It's either you understand that your rights, your freedoms are in jeopardy. Well, this is the candidate that you need. That's what I think that they have to do. They have to re, you know, they have to reignite this base. But, you know, look, as we're coming down to the end of the hour, I have just really one more question for you, Trey. Yeah. I would like for you to tell me, what's the Lincoln Project currently working on now? I happen to love the Lincoln Project yeah. and everybody that's there in it. What should we be looking out for? And how can I, how can my audience get involved? Because, so, like I just said, like I just said, this midterm election, it's everything. The general election, that could be the end of democracy. Yeah. First thing that they should do is go to jointheunion.us, where they can sign up. The union is, is really, we've, we've, we've worked together with, I think it's over 100 organizations now. There's maybe like 100,000 activists who have joined the union, and, and we help steer those people who want to be involved to be involved in the places. And this is really what our focus is. Focus on those races that are most important for defending democracy um, and have the most impact on that. So, you know, we're telling people, you know, who follow the Lincoln Project, our focus is, is almost entirely on races that help defend guardrails of democracy or to defeat people like Doug, you know, Doug Mastriano, who have to lose for our democracy to continue. If they go to jointheunion.us, they can become a part of that effort. Um, we tell people, you know, if you live in Marjorie Taylor Greene's district, and I was talking to somebody on another format who, who is, and she's like, I, I'm a Democrat, but Marjorie Taylor Greene's going to win. And we're like, you know what? You can be making phone calls to stop Doug Mastriano, to right. stop Carrie Lake from your house in, in northern Georgia. And here's how you can go and do that really easy. Um, so that's the key thing. And, yeah, you should do a little bit to help your local candidate who's running against Marjorie Taylor Greene is probably going to lose because you want people to stand up to her. But you can also be doing stuff to defend democracy. So th- that's really where our focus is. It's all on the races. Um, that are about defending democracy. And then, as you may have noticed, occasionally we get inside Donald Trump's head because we kind of live there on occasion. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, don't, don't we and, all, and unfortunately. That's important. We can't, we can't, we cannot, 
you know, I would ask you, I, uh, because I've already used you once when you said he wasn't going to concede. He's going to run again. I mean, you say that all no. the time. No. He's not going to run I always again. Say, I say, I've been saying forever, I have never Won't changed run. my position. He will not run. Um, you could rest assured that that would then mean the end of his fundraising capabilities for himself. On top of that, he knows statistically he right. cannot win, and there are at least a dozen Republicans that I know will be entering the race, whether Donald Trump ends up uh, deciding to do it or not. And his biggest fear, because he's got a fragile, he's yeah. got a baby ego, would be that he wouldn't win the primary and that he'd be a two-time loser if he ended up winning the general. So he wants to, he's going he's gonna to be the kingmaker, his endorsement. Amen. Yeah. And so, yep. you know, the key thing is going to be staying in his cage and creating consequences for those guys who are aspiring to it. And and here's the thing. Donald Trump has started started the um, the race to the bottom of the autocracy within the Republican ranks. And you see this all the time. They're all trying to outdo themselves to be the most Trumpy. And, mm-hmm. and we, you know, at the Lincoln Project, we're going to be fighting that because, as you know, we started with two goals. One was to get Donald Trump out of office, and the other was to defeat Trumpism. Defeating Trumpism is going to take a, a long time. It's going to take people like the Lincoln Project, like you. It's going to take all of us rallying together if we're going to defeat that. Well, you have me, and you have my audience, and uh, I look forward, Trigvi, to speaking to and seeing you hopefully soon. Um, stay safe and stay Thank in touch you. because we don't have a lot of time left. Hey, I'll tell you what, I can't wait till the next time I'm off in New York, I'm reaching out. So maybe we can go, we can go grab some food there you and go. have a really good conversation. It's been a real pleasure. I will pleasure. speak to you soon, my brother. Thank you so much. Thank you. Be well. And now for today's mea culpa. Marco Rubio lied about his voting record on disaster relief, but he's hardly alone. He voted against the relief for Hurricane Sandy. So don't let him tell you different. And now he and his tightwad buddy Rick Scott are out shilling for more money for Florida. They will likely get it because Democrats actually care about people in crisis. But I personally loathe people who don't give a shit about something until it happens to them. Now Rubio is running for re-election against Val Demings, and while at this moment it doesn't look probable, it is still possible for Demings to take his Senate seat from him. After three terms, it's not like he's made anything better for his state. And right now, climate deniers and anti-vaxxers in Florida are being challenged to reconcile their beliefs with reality. 80,000 plus people died of COVID, and Hurricane Ian's death toll is mounting. As Floridians' homes filled up with water, I bet folks ask themselves why it's so tough to get flood insurance in Florida. And what's Marco Rubio going to do about it? Nothing. The answer is seriously fucking nothing. He couldn't be bothered to even show up and vote on short-term spending bill that included $18.8 billion for Federal Emergency Management Agency. It's a disaster bill, even though the money was earmarked for his state. I mean, think about that. And he was out begging for federal funds, but he won't vote on a disaster bill? How the fuck does that make sense? It just doesn't. But that's little Marco in a nutshell. Who's that worthless so-and-so in a cheap blue suit wandering around looking lost? Oh yeah, that's fucking Marco. 
Now, if Val Demings weren't still sheriff of Orlando, I'd ask her to arrest Rubio for loitering or sleeping on the job. But Miss Demings doesn't have time for loafers like Rubio because she's busy. Working for Florida 27 years as a police officer was capped off by her being the first female chief of the Orlando Police Department. Demings was on the shortlist to become vice president under Joe Biden and showed her intelligence and grit as an impeachment manager during Trump's first impeachment go-around. She's also the first lady of Orange County, Florida since her husband became mayor in 2018. She is a mother and a one-time social worker with a degree in public administration. Demings is the type who cares and shows up to prove it. She's pro-abortion. The ACLU gave her an A-plus for her voting record on civil liberties. She is a centrist black woman who wants to keep firearms out of the hands of people who seek to do harm. But she's not out to take your guns. But she sure as hell respects the rule of law. Why? Because she is the law. Right now she's tied with Rubio and even Hispanics are breaking her way. And again, why? Because she's a good person, a fair person, who isn't in politics for the fame, but for the public service. And that's what we need from our elected officials. A commitment to service. So people of Florida, vote Val Demings, and you won't be sorry. She'll have you back. And as always, thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media, written by Jimmy Jelinek and Paula Killen. Our editor and managing producer is Lisa Orkin. Our executive producers are Jared Gustad, Jimmy Jelinek, and myself, Michael Cohen, along with Phil Alberstadt. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is still winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, I promise you, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Maya Culpa, nothing but the truth. Oh.